Hello, everyone, and welcome to the special question and answer session. My name is Laura Wingate, and I'm the Senior Director of Field and National Programs for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. On December 6, 2012, CCFA hosted a live telephone and web education program titled, It's Up to You, Decisions in IBD Management. This program discussed treatment options for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and how to advocate for optimal care. If you have not done so already, we encourage you to view the archived presentation. Questions were submitted by participants, but we did not have an opportunity to answer all of them during the live program. We are happy to have our speaker for the program, Dr. David Schwartz of Vanderbilt University Medical Center, here to answer more of the excellent questions from our webcast audience. This program is supported by educational grants from Milan and UCB and a sponsorship from Shire. I will now ask the first question. Dr. Schwartz, I have a question from Julie, and she would like you to elaborate on what are anti-TNFs and what exactly do they target? Thanks, Laura. Um, Anti-TNFs are a cl in a class of medications called biologics, and essentially what they are are um, antibodies created in a lab against a target in our body that causes inflammation called tumor necrosis factor. So the body secretes more tumor necrosis factor um, when there's inflammation, for instance, when it needs to recruit inflammatory cells to cause inflammation. For instance, if you have, um, let's say, a cold or infection and you want to clear the infection, the immune system upregulates the production of tumor necrosis factor alpha, appropriately so, until the infection is cleared and then that signal goes away. We believe in inflammatory bowel disease that, one of, that is one of many signals that is abnormally upregulated. So these antibodies that are created in the lab target this abnormal signal uh, and thus decrease the overall signal for inflammation in inflammatory bowel disease and uh, allow the patient's disease to um, be, go into remission. Thank you. I have another question. Uh, this is from Diane. Can you elaborate on the current thinking of how remission is defined? My daughter has UC and her pain and bloating are under control, but she's still bleeding. Is this common and is this considered well-controlled disease? That's a great question and one that's really has sort of changed um, over the last three to five years. So remission should really be returning to the way you felt before you ever uh, developed inflammatory bowel disease which means no bleeding, no diarrhea, no abdominal pain. So the fact that uh, her daughter is, is still having um, some bleeding would make me think that there probably is some degree of active uh, inflammation going on in her colon and may need to be further investigated. So just to kind of elaborate on this a little bit more, um, in the past we had different types of, uh, in, in the past we would shoot mainly for what we call clinical remission, meaning when the symptoms return to normal. But now with the recognition that it's really also important to get the colon and the small intestine hopefully back to a, uh, the state it was in prior to developing IBD, we also are um, shooting for both endoscopic and histologic, meaning on biopsy, uh, evidence of remission, as sort of deeper levels of remission that are obtainable in, in a lot of patients. Thank you. Our next question is from Mark. And his question is, can mesodalamine be effective in treating cases of mild Crohn's disease? 
This is um, a little bit of a controversial question. So um, mesalamine are the 5-ASA agents which are available. There's probably eight or nine different versions of mesalamine, all with different um, release mechanisms or different strengths, uh, dosage concentrations of the mesalamine. Um, they're very effective in ulcerative colitis. In Crohn's disease, though, um, the data is somewhat mixed. And I think um, it probably would be um, accepted by most, pa most physicians that treat IBD patients that the mesalamine products aren't all that effective for small bowel Crohn's disease. But, for instance, disease that involves the last part of your small intestine, uh, such as the ileum, which is the most common location for active disease in patients who have Crohn's. But probably are uh, fairly effective for patients that have Crohn's disease isolated just to the colon. In that situation, these medications, especially at, at higher doses, works um, fairly well. But for the, most patients with Crohn's disease in which the disease involves the last part of the small intestine and maybe a small part of the colon, the mesalamine products may not be the best choice for treating uh, their disease. Thank you. Our next question comes from Grant. How can I best make a decision regarding involvement in athletic activity when dealing with moderate UC? This is a, a very common question we get from patients in clinic, um, and um, a lot of times it's the, there's, um, have, they've been given a lot different advice. Patients have been given different advice from relatives, from maybe their primary care physician, um, and it can be a, a, um, somewhat difficult cause to decide how, how much activity uh, is appropriate. And I think if one is in tune with one's body, you can let your, sort of your body be the uh, judge of of what's too much and what's uh, and what you can act, do safely. Um, certainly, if someone's having a lot of diarrhea and is sort of dehydrated at baseline, you know, doing something where you're going to lose a lot of um, fluid from sweat and, and such may not be uh, a great option. But it's important to stay active uh, when you're on when you have IBD, especially if you're on medications such as steroids, uh, because it helps prevent further bone loss. So I think sort of the the, the one line take-home point for this is to is sort of let your body be the judge. If you uh, start to feel lightheaded or um, if you have a difficult time recovering from um, an event, you probably have overdone it. You may want to back off um, next time when deciding how much activity uh, is safe for you to do. Our next question comes from James. Can you explain how a permanent ileostomy can cause a remission in Crohn's disease symptoms? Sure. Well, um, so Crohn's disease is probably uh, an umbrella term that we're using to describe many, many different forms of IBD, um, and some of those forms of, I, of Crohn's affect just the colon. So if one has surgery to remove the, um, the colon, um, that you're essentially removing the target that the immune system is re reacting against, so there, therefore the disease goes into remission. This is a very small percentage of patients, maybe 20 to 30% of patients will have just isolated Crohn's colitis. If they have colectomy, there's a chance that their disease will, will be in a surgical remission postoperatively and not need to um, go on medications for maintenance. Thank you. Our next question comes from Danielle. Are therapies for Crohn's disease of the upper GI system, e.g. the mouth and esophagus, the same? This is a new diagnosis, and I'm trying to figure out treatment options. Um, I think what she's asking is if if Crohn's involving the mouth and esophagus is similar to Crohn's involving the um, ileum or colon. Um, so I'm going to address it uh, as 
that under, under the, that understanding. Um, what we um, Crohn's involving the, the esophagus and mouth or upper GI tract is um, not very. It's an uncommon um, manifestation or presentation of Crohn's disease. It, it tends to be a little bit more aggressive form of Crohn's. Sort of a rule of thumb is the more proximal, higher up in the GI tract, the Crohn's is involving. It tends to be a little bit more aggressive. So um, the um, usually when we see patients that have involvement of their stomach or esophagus or mouth in this case. Um, it, it means that they have um, a marker of more aggressive disease, and we will try to pick a therapy, that a little bit stronger therapy, to help um, treat their disease as, as this tends to be a little bit more refractory to therapy. Thank you. Our next question is from David. Can side effects of IBD medications be minimized or reversed? And if so, how? This um, question could be... Um, uh, a whole hour-long talk, so I'll try to summarize this in a very short um, period of time. But um, a lot of the medications that we use have uh, reliable side effects that we can, reliable potential side effects that we can monitor. For instance, I'll give you an example. We use um, medicines such as azathioprine or 6-mecaptopurine to treat both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And we know one of the things that we actually wanted to do is suppress the immune system, um, but we don't want to go too far to where we increase your risk of developing infections, so um, we all will require patients to um, come in and have their labs drawn periodically so that we may monitor their, um, their white blood cell count to make sure that it doesn't get too low to the point where they're at risk for infections. That, that's one good example. The other example that um, is very common is we, we use steroids very frequently um, in, in IBD, and, and steroids also have side effects. One of the most common ones that we see with long-term use of steroids uh, is osteoporosis, and we know there are things that can be done to counteract or prevent that from happening, such as taking plenty of calcium and vitamin D um, while on steroids, or, and maybe even starting other prescription medications to help prevent the bone loss, which we see with, with prednisone. Those are just two examples. Um, I'll give you one more, and then um, there, there are, I know, um, online talks just on this, this topic on the CCFA website that you can look at, but for instance, with um, anti-TNF medications such as um, Remicade or Humira or Simsia, um, it does potentially increase your risk of developing infections such as TB, tuberculosis, and so we want to make sure that we test for um, exposure to that, back to that infection before we start the medication to reduce or even eliminate the risk of developing tuberculosis while on these medications. Our next question comes from Robert. Are there clinical trials for homeopathic therapy being conducted? What are the potential risks of this treatment? So um, this is um, just I'll sort of for those who are listening to this who may not know what the, the question is referring to, there was a study done in, I think, 2005 or 2006 that looked at pig whipworm eggs um, to treat inflammatory bowel disease and the, kind of the base of the the, the the therapy for this is that our immune system has developed over hundreds of thousands of years to fight off parasites, and now that our food and water supply is clean, people's um, immune system, that part of their immune system is sort of not needed, or not as, and so um, in some people, sort of turns on itself and causes inflammation. Um, pig whipworm eggs are thought to be um, non-invasive not parasites that are obviously... Um, are parasites for pigs, but are not invasive, should not be invasive in, in humans. And so by taking these, you sort of reoccupy that part of the immune system 
um, and, and uh, allow the patient's uh, IBD to go into remission. And some of the initial results look promising. There is um, a study, a multi-center international study starting now, um, starting soon, I should say, looking at uh, pig whipworm eggs for the treatment of, I think it's the initial therapy is, the initial study is on um, Crohn's disease. Um, and so it'll be very interesting to, to find out what the results are after this trial is, is um, finished. Now, there are, even though these are felt to be um, fairly safe parasites, there have been cases of disseminated parasitic infections in patients who um, were taking this therapy. So there are still, um, there are some potential risks and you should discuss this with your physician before um, either entering into the trial or even trying to get this um, outside of the trial setting. Our next question is from Beth. How long can one safely remain on biologics? How often should you have blood work done while on these medications? So uh, this is a, another very common question that we get in, in clinic when we see patients. And, and to just to take a step back and remind everyone what biologics are, they're antibodies created in a lab against a, a signal in the body that causes uh, inflammation. And it, it, right now, that, that really means uh, primarily the tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitors that are on the market, although there are several new biologics that are um, on the horizon. And um, the question about how long one can safely remain on the medications, the first one that was released was infliximab or Remicade, and that was uh, approved, I believe, back in, in 1998. Uh, and so we've had um, you know, quite a long experience, almost 15 years' experience with this medication. Uh, and there does not seem to be any new safety signals that have emerged uh, since it's been released. W with the other way to kind of turn this question around um, is, you know, we, we would like to see these medications continue to be effective and keep you in remission indefinitely. Um, but the reality is, uh, uh, on average, most patients can only stay on a therapy for about five years before they lose response to the therapy. There are newer, as I mentioned, newer biologics um, coming to market hopefully soon. And so when we um, talk to patients about starting the anti-TNFs right now, we, we tell them that we hope they respond to them and we'd like to maintain that response as long as possible. But there are newer medicines that are coming out and when they come out, we'll constantly reassess whether or not that um, particular medicine may be a better option for the patient. The, um, the, the truth of the matter is that most patients will you know, probably not be able to stay on the same medication we start today, say 10 years down the line, because of the development of antibodies over time. Um, and as far as blood work that um, should be done while on these medications, there's really no um, rule as to you have to check certain labs periodically uh, while on these medicines. I think all of us do follow fairly um, uh, routine practice of checking certain things while the patient's on these medicines to make sure, for instance, they're not getting infections, their blood counts have remained uh, normal, and their inflammatory markers are, are responding to the medicine. But um, there's no uh, set guideline as to, as to labs that have to be checked for sure while on um, these medications. Now, you do need to make sure that you get a TB test done yearly so that you haven't, make sure that you haven't been exposed to tuberculosis during the last um, 12 months while on the medication. Very informative. Our next question is from Neri. What sort of regular screening or testing is advised for people who have undergone a colectomy and have a J pouch? 
so I, I, I suspect what the question is, is uh, the bottom line of this question is how often should the patient be scoped? Um, so the um, so in someone that's had ulcerative colitis and they have a colectomy and develop a, and then have a J pouch, um, and they're doing well, they're, in other words, they're not having uh, problems with pouchitis, we will normally um, perform surveillance pouchoscopies every two years to make sure that there's no inflammation in the pouch, but more importantly that they haven't developed dysplasia in the small amount of rectum that's left called the, rect the cuff, where the pouch is sewn just above the anal canal. Um, patients with pouches are also at risk of other things, um, for instance, osteoporosis, kidney stones, B12 deficiency. So, um, you know, periodically you do want to get bone densities performed um, yeah, as needed. Uh, so, on average, we do that every two to five years, depending on the patient's history, um, and also get lab work checked, you know, every six to 12 months to make sure they're, they're not developing, sort of, for instance, B12 deficiency. Thank you. Our next question comes from Michelle. My daughter was diagnosed at 11 with Crohn's disease and is taking azathioprine. She had to increase the dose. When do you know when increasing medication doses it indicates a need to move on to another therapy? Um, so that's um, sometimes a very difficult decision to make. Um, I suspect if your daughter started azathioprine at age 11 and she's older now, she probably has grown. Um, azathioprine is dosed based on weight, so it, it may have been... Um, appropriate to increase the uh, dose of the medication just to make up for the difference in weight from when she first started the medicine to where she's at now. Um, sometimes there's a range of, of dosing for these medications, such as azathioprine. So the, your daughter may have been on the lowest active dose of the medicine, and with the flare, the physician felt it was appropriate to increase to more towards the higher end of that, that spectrum in order to get her into remission. There are a lot of labs that we can check to help uh, figure out whether or not we've maximized the medication. For with azathioprine, we can actually check the metabolite, both the active and toxic metabolite of the medication, and get a sense of whether or not we've maximized that therapy, um, and decide whether or not moving on to another medicine is appropriate. Thank you. Our next question comes from Lloyd, and his question is: I have UC and have been told I am positive for PANCA antibodies. Is this related to my UC, and does it indicate a higher risk of problems in the future? That's a, a, also a very good question. Um, so P-ANCA antibodies are very common in patients that have ulcerative colitis. Um, they, they're not present in all patients with ulcerative colitis, but in the majority. They do um, signify some things for us as far as, um, for instance, if the patient were to undergo a colectomy in J-pouch for their ulcerative colitis, people that have P-ANCA antibodies are much more likely to get pouchitis. So if so, we know someone is P-ANCA positive uh, at the time of their pouch surgery, we might consider um, certain things afterwards to help prevent the development of chronic pouchitis. People that um, are um, P-ANCA positive um, also uh, tend to have a little bit more aggressive uh, disease course, um, but um, as I mentioned before, the majority of patients with ulcerative colitis will have antibodies, uh, pink uh, antibodies. Very interesting. Our next question is from Barbara. I'm a Crohn's patient, age 56, in remission. Is it safe to take the shingles vaccine? The, um, so the shingles vaccine um, is a fairly new vaccine, mm -hmm. and um, the, 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 my answer to this question would really depend on what other medicines Barbara was on. So if the 
Barbara was taking medicines such as um, immunomodulators or anti-TNF antibodies, the, that would be, um, it would be uh, potentially contraindicated for her to take the shingles vaccine as it, it um, contains some uh, live virus. So um, in that situation, I would encourage her to discuss this with her physician. There are um, different studies now that are looking at using this vaccine in patients who are on anti-TNFs and, and it may indeed be safe in these patients. If she is not on any immunosuppressive medicines, she is 56, and there is a potential of needing to go on these medicines in the future, um, and I would encourage her to um, discuss, with, discuss the shingles vaccine with her physician because she would likely benefit from it. Thank you. Lauren and several others have this question. What are your thoughts on using biologics in people who are not experiencing symptoms but do have uncontrolled inflammation? So what I think Laura is, Lauren, sorry, is um, referring to is she is clinically doing well. She's not having um, a lot of diarrhea or abdominal pain, but when her physician does either an imaging study or a colonoscopy, they notice that she has a lot of either colitis or, or inflammation in her small intestine that's asymptomatic to her. And as I alluded to with an earlier question, um, in the past we re our main goal was really to get someone uh, symptoms better back to baseline, and we would be we were happy with that. That's called clinical remission. But now, really, we're understanding the negative impact of ongoing inflammation uh, in the body, and and um, also understand that if we can achieve what we call mucosal healing, meaning that when we look, uh, we don't see any active inflammation, that patients do better long term. They have less chance of hospitalization, less chance of complications from their disease, less chance for surgery. And so um, a lot of us uh, would advocate increasing therapy till we get to the point where the mucosa is back to as close to normal as possible. So in, um, in my, to answer what my, her with what my treatment philosophy is, if, if someone is in her situation, they're not having a lot of clinical symptoms, but we see a lot of active inflammation in their intestines, I usually do discuss uh, increasing therapy in that patient um, to see if we can get that to um, go back to normal. Thank you. Our next question is from Monica. If symptoms do not develop after surgery for Crohn's disease, but biopsies show that there's inflammation present in the intestine, should you be on maintenance medication? That's a, a very difficult question, and it would sort of depend on what other what the patient's history was. So if the patient came to surgery, and I guess it would also depend on how severe the inflammation was that the physician saw. So if the patient came to surgery very quickly after diagnosis, less than five years after diagnosis, we know that person has a fairly aggressive form of Crohn's disease, and the presence of inflammation, even without symptoms uh, on endoscopy, would signify that their disease is getting ready to come back. And over time, that will lead to the need for another surgery in, in a, lot of our, a lot of those patients. So if we identify uh, inflammation in that <clears throat> clinical situation, it would be recommended to start in, uh, medicine to help prevent that inflammation from progressing. If the person had very, very mild inflammation on um, their endoscopy and they and or they had taken, it had been 15 to 20 years since they were diagnosed before they came to surgery, then it would be, little, it would be something that would be... Um, up to you and your physician to discuss the sort of the pros and cons of uh, what you would get out of starting a maintenance medication in in that situation. So uh, I'm sorry, not I can't completely answer this question because I don't know all the details. But um, 
usually the presence of inflammation after surgery is, is not a good thing, and we would want to start medication to prevent that from progressing and leading to surgery over time. Thank you. Our next question is from Danielle. Are there any non-invasive, non-surgical options for a perianal fistula? I'm healthy, active patient with a J pouch and no other Crohn's symptoms. Yeah. Um, so I think what the question is referring to is whether or not she would need to um, have the J pouch removed in order to help prevent, uh, in order to help treat the um, the fistulas. And because um, there are the types of surgery that are usually done for fistulas with Crohn's disease. Um, are really very non-invasive outpatient procedures where the surgeon will simply just sort of clean up the in inflammation or in infection that's in uh, that's there and also place strings or tubes in the, the fistula tracts themselves to help us control healing and let the medicines we're going to start work more effectively. They're very minor outpatient procedures that um, really should be pretty well tolerated. Um, so... I'm assuming that's what she means, but um, there are also a lot of obviously medical options for treating perianal fistulas. People that that get the surgical, the minor surgical procedures first before we start the medicines for their fistulizing disease, such as um, the anti-TNF antibodies, seem to do much better. And we would advocate getting those done prior to starting any of those medications, and, and certainly would try all those first before we would um, opt to remove a pouch or remove someone's colon or rectum or perianal fistulas. Our next question is from Lisa. Is three months a long enough period of time to decide that a biologic is working for Crohn's disease? Yeah. Um, the, in general, that's kind of the, the amount of time we will, we'd will we like to allow the, um, the current biologics that are out there uh, to work. So when we start a medicine, we always want to get a sense of whether or not you're responding to it or not. A lot of people will respond very quickly, but there are some patients that we call late responders and, and will take you know somewhere between 8 to 12 weeks before we see the really the full effect of the biologic therapy. <clears throat> so um, in general, we try to wait about three to four months to make to see if the, you've developed a response to the medication before we say the medicine's not working and we're going to move on to another treatment option. Otherwise, we may switch therapies too quickly. Um, and with these medications, a lot of times once you've gone off of them and have been off of them for a period of time, you may develop antibodies to them if we want to start them again. So you sort of lose that, that option as a, a therapy once you move on. Our next question comes from Carolyn. My daughter is 19 years old, college student with UC, and doesn't have the healthiest eating habits right now. What are the best places to find reliable information regarding diets for IBD patients? We, um, in our clinic, we, we believe that um, diet is a, a very important part of the uh, therapy for patients with IBD. Um, we actually have a dietitian that sees all of our new patients and works with, with us to develop a treatment plan for patients with IBD. It's, um, as of yet, we do not have a diet that treats uh, IBD by itself, but following certain diets will help re reduce some of the symptoms and some of the potential nutritional deficiencies that we will see sometimes with bad disease. So hopefully your physician may have, uh, your GI may have a um, dietitian or nutritionist that works with them in clinic or one that they work with closely at the hospital or in the, in the practice that they are, are in and can refer you to that, that person as well so they can make an assessment and help um, do a sort of one-on-one -on -one, uh, dietary plan for you. But there's also a lot of uh, different 
um, resources online for helping to research what the, the appropriate dietary uh, and nutritional um, things a patient needs. And, and probably the best one is on the CCFA website. There have been um, educational presentations just on diet and IBD. And, and Laura, I'll let you share that link with, with the listeners. Thanks, Dr. Schwartz. Um, there are several links that were probably re really helpful, but one of them is uh, on ccfa.org backslash resources backslash webcast. And if you click on that link, there is a program that we did on diet, nutrition, and inflammatory bowel diseases, understanding the connection. And this program was presented by Dr. David Rubin and Tracy D'Alessandro, a registered dietitian. And this is a really terrific resource. Um, also, for a college student, they may be able to find uh, resources on CCFA's Campus Connection. And this program, again, you can uh, get to the college website by visiting ccfa.org at, at www.ccfa.org backslash campus hyphen connection backslash. And uh, this is a great site for college students to get those resources and get tips from other students about diet and living on college campus and, and having the right uh, nutritional balance. And finally, the, the last resource that may be really helpful to a college student trying to get better eating habits is our GI Buddy, which is an a application online or by iPhone that allows uh, patients to track their diet and their symptoms as well as their medication. And that can be found at www.ibdetermined.org backslash tracker. Again, all of these can be accessed from the CCFA website directly. The next question comes from Dino. Can you speak to the risk of Tisabri if you are not showing the JC antibodies, meaning you should not develop PML? Great. You know, that's a, um, a good question. The um, Tisabri is uh, a fourth uh, biologic that I haven't mentioned before that works differently than the anti-TNF antibodies. It's, a, it's an antibody that targets how the white blood cells get from the blood system into the tissue to cause inflammation, the adhesion molecules. And this has been out uh, for about a decade or so now, uh, mainly used for multiple sclerosis, but also has been tested in Crohn's disease. And it, it um, has sort of gone through several cycles of use. So when it initially came out, I think we were all very excited about its potential in Crohn's disease. And then um, from the trials, uh, several patients had developed an effect, infection of the brain called uh, PML, or um, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, for if you want the full name. Um, and that really limited it, has limited its use up until about the last year. Well, um, thankfully, there has been an antibody developed that allows us to identify those patients that have been exposed to the JC virus, which is the virus that causes the infection associated with the use of Tisabri, and allows us to sort of risk stratify patients who are at higher risk of developing this infection and those that um, are at low risk. And so if one is JC virus antibody negative, meaning they have not been exposed to the JC virus, the risk of developing the PML infection would be incredibly rare. It's estimated, well, actually there's never been, as far as I know, there's never been a case of PML developing in someone who is JC virus neg antibody negative. But the risk that's uh, quoted currently is somewhere in the range of one uh, out of 60,000 patients that uh, will, will receive the drug 
uh, in this situation would develop PML. Now, conversely, if you're JC virus antibody positive and you're on therapy for more than a year, the risk is estimated to be somewhere between 1 in 500 and 1 in 1,000 of developing PML. So still very rare, but obviously a lot more common than if you're JC virus antibody negative. Very interesting. Our last question comes from Laura. Could you please speak to collaborating with a medical team when you're out of town at college and living in a different city from your gastroenterologist? In your opinion, is it essential to have a local gastroenterologist who can contribute to your IBD care? Yeah, I think um, it is important. So um, I'm on both ends of this um, question. So I'm at Vanderbilt University, so we do take care of a lot of um, students that are here you know, during co the college year and then go back home for the summer. And um, so when, I'm, when they get done with school in May and head home for the summer, we, you know, we need to make sure they have someone who's going to be taking care of them when they uh, go home, make sure, for instance, if they're on certain medicines, they get the monitoring that's needed. Um, they can get their infusions if, if needed at home. And also, if they were to get sick, they have someone they can go to locally that, that knows them well and will take care of them. Um, you know, if they're, they're hundreds of miles away, it's going to be hard to get in a plane or in a car and um, come here to be assessed. So it, it is important to have someone locally. And, and we always, when we have um, some of our younger patients that are leaving Nashville and going to different universities around the country, we, we try to identify a, a gastroenterologist locally that we know and trust that can um, assume their care. And we try to obviously provide them all the information they need to take care of the patient when they're there. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Schwartz, for taking the time to answer all these wonderful questions. If you are listening and have another question about IBD, please call CCFA's Information Resource Center at 888-694-8872 or visit us online at www.ccfa.org. To help us further our understanding of IBD, we encourage you to join CCFA Partners, our national registry of patient-reported outcomes. Simply complete an online survey and be part of this exciting research initiative. Patients will receive research updates and information on IBD. Visit www.ccfapartners.org to learn more and to participate. Once again, we would like to thank Alon, UCB, and Shire for their support of this program. On behalf of the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, thank you for joining us.